Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we are covering Ned's ascent to the Iron Throne. In fact, we see the introduction to the Iron Throne. This is where Ned dispatches Beric Dondarrion and company to go deal with the mountain. My guest this week is Carol Parrish Jameson. She is professor at Georgia Southern University. You should absolutely check out her book, Chivalry in Westeros, The Nightly Code of a Song of Ice and Fire. Carol is helping me continue the theme of knights and chivalry, and there is no one better. She is an expert on the codes that make knights. Her book is great for comparing the codes of Westeros and the codes of the medieval world. And then Steve and I continue our trek through season five. And finally, in my bird's eye view, I read a few pages from a short essay that Martin wrote about Daemon Targaryen. So mild spoilers in the bird's eye view section. But I think I revealed just enough to give you a taste of Damon's character. I don't reveal too much about the plot. That said, if you want to avoid spoilers, just go ahead and skip that section this week. Without further ado, here is Professor Carol Parrish Jameson. We can just go ahead and start by talking about your book. What's the title? The title is Chivalry in Westeros. And 2018, McFarlane, mm-hmm. right? And so people right. can probably find that on the McFarlane website. But, of course, as with all things, you can probably do a quick search on Amazon. Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> and find it that way. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about the book, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, so in this book, I talk about how Martin reworks not just the chivalric code, but other warrior codes as well, specifically the chivalric code, and how his works intersect with medieval romance and heroic works and their depictions of the chivalric code. Mm. And I'm most interested in how he teases out the contradictions that are inherent in that code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. It's a it's a little bit of a rhetorical question. Uh, sure. But <laughs> I'm curious to see how you reply. Does the code make the knight or does the knight make the code? Well, that's a very good question. I think in theory the code makes the knight. Okay. All right. Yeah. I oh, think, yeah in yeah. theory, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. In theory. Again, the problem is that the code is it sets up ideals and ideals um you know, indicate perfection, and mm. there's no such thing in perfection, so you can really only fail. Uh, <laughs> right. So there is no perfect knight, even in, in medieval romance, even Galahad, for example. Um, yeah, he's the perfect knight, but he gives up one whole aspect that's typically associated with chivalry, and that's love of ladies, right? Because he's chaste. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so to be the perfect knight, you know, um, you would have to live up to, the, to all of these ideals, and no one ever quite does it. Mm. Well, I have a question, and mm-hmm. I was wondering for our listeners who might be interested. It seems like there's this, from, I guess, from the early medieval period mm-hmm. to the late 1500s, the concept of knighthood really evolves. It does. And I wonder yeah. if you could talk a little bit about that evolution, maybe beginning with, you know, the idea of sort of just a, the horseman, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> the guy the guy who's good on horseback riding around the countryside of France uh, to, to right. maybe what we see in more of like the, the 1200s. Right. Yeah. So I would probably go back to talk about the warrior code of um, I'm, you know, I focus primarily on England. So the heroic code that you see um, in works like uh, like Beowulf and the Battle of Malden, you know, at this point, they're not knights, they're warriors, Mm. but they're predecessors to, I think, what, you know, what becomes the chivalric code in that other things are involved in addition to prowess, such Mm. as loyalty, which is a, a very big part of the chivalric code once the chivalric code comes into play. So we're kind of all set up for the chivalric code, which comes in really in a way like through through the troubadours and then through the writings of mm. you know um yeah uh patrons of of women really like Eleanor of Aquitaine and Marie de Champagne who add these other elements into it almost softer elements that we associate uh with chivalry um such as courtesy behavior towards uh, towards women which is not considered a part of the heroic code mm. and so it begins to highlight more the term courtesy itself uh, originally meant, you know, behavior at court. So that becomes more of a focus as well. And so we see that beginning, uh, beginning to evolve in works like the uh, the Song of Roland uh, is a French work that's really more of an epic, but it's sort of transitioning us into uh, more chivalric kinds of works. Mm. With the Arthurian tradition, we have early works that just give Arthur a life story. And then later, uh, other writers come in and start adding in these elements of chivalry. Interesting. Is that going where you wanted it to go? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And so then I guess the next question is, you know, so these ideals uh, Mm -hmm. really get traction, right? They do. So you get these not just courtly, but also religious elements to the office of a knight. Um, Right. But then I guess I want to talk about also about sort of the twilight of knighthood. Like, how, mm-hmm. how does it go away? Like, why and why does it go away? <laughs> well, it uh, largely goes away when guns come into play. <laughs> that changes <laughs> that you know, that changes the whole landscape. Um, sure. but, but, but it's interesting because you know, literally, they some... can go away now. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Different ballgame. Uh, but we can think, you know, of works like uh, like Sir Thomas Mallory's The Death of Arthur, which, you know, we we take the, the legend of King Arthur specifically, uh, who I guess is who we think of when we think quintessentially about the chivalric code mm-hmm. and, you know, the demise of, of Arthur. And, and clearly uh, Mallory is writing near the waning of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Right. He's 15th century. But there are contradictions within the chivalric code way earlier, even I think as early as um, Chrétien de Troyes, who is the first writer of romance, we often call him at least. Hmm. He invented the character of Lancelot. And Lancelot, um, you know, Lancelot is in quite a dilemma, right, as far as chivalry goes, because he's loyal to Arthur. He's Arthur's best knight. Hmm. He's supposed to be a Christian knight. Mm -hmm. And you have to be loyal to your lady. Well, what happens 
when your lady is married to your king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, you're at a contradiction there with religion as mm-hmm. well. So I would say that, yes, it, it evolves, it wanes, but there are contradictions within that code, I think, throughout the period. Right. And basically, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that mm-hmm. there were some structural problems with these codes from the beginning. Exactly. And it was something that probably wasn't going to last um, mm-hmm. because no matter what, a knight trying to live up to every ideal was simply going to fail. Right. And I think it simply offered an ideal, something aspirational hmm. rather than, than realistic. You know, uh, and th- there's always a sense of nostalgia about it. The golden age of Arthur, you know, this time that never existed. Yeah. Uh, so there is always a certain nostalgia that I see Martin working with that as well when mm-hmm. he talks about the white book. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the stories of, oh, when I, how the nights used to be. Right, right. All right, I'm going <laughs> to read a short synopsis of this chapter. Okay. Okay, so here's my synopsis. Ned is sitting without comfort upon the Iron Throne. Baelish, Varys, Pycelle, a number of petitioners and observers are before him. The petitioners represent several villages that have been ravaged by so-called brigands. But the repeated claim is that these brigands represent House Lannister. Ned suspects that this violence is yet another consequence of Tyrion's capture. Even so, he must have proof that these were indeed Lannister men. The best proof of the matter is that Gregor Clegane was seen among the criminals. Ned refuses Pycelle's plea to dismiss the case and dismisses Loras's veiled appeal for vengeance. Instead, he commissions Beric Dondarrion and company to bring justice to the so-called false knight, Gregor Clegane. Afterward, Varys notes that Ned might have insulted both Loras and Illyn Payne. So, Carol Jamison, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Well, of course, I want to talk about the theme of chivalry, but I would like to get there via the ladder of chaos. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let, we'll let you take the first. We'll, we'll let you go first on this. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how okay. someone who's an expert on chivalry reads this chapter. Yeah, yeah it's funny. This um, I don't think I paid a lot of attention to this chapter in the past. But, you know, setting up a lot of things, the, a lot of events to come. Uh, but there really is a lot to unpack here. And the, the first thing I think that really strikes me about it is Eddard, the, mm. the position that Eddard is in. And I think more than maybe anywhere else in, um, in the novels, I appreciated just how horribly uncomfortable that throne is. Mm, mm. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he can the blades, but and he's in this. Uh, he is in this position where um, uh, he's really he's caught himself within you know uh, the code of honor that he believes in, mm-hmm. and you know and what he should do. I find him kind of a hard character to read. Um, I don't know. Do you, uh, uh, Ned? Yes. You know, it's interesting. I think that that's most people's encounter with Ned. And I even think that that might be Martin's encounter with Ned. I don't feel like, mm-hmm. I don't feel like, I think Ned kind of represents something that Martin wants to deconstruct. But I, you know, I've been reading this book alongside several, you know, close readers like yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that the variety of opinions about Ned have helped reshape the way I see him. I've developed a little bit more sympathy for his situation. 
But mm-hmm. I, I like that you're bringing up the Iron Throne here. I think this is the first time we've seen anyone sit on the Iron Throne in this book. It may be. Yeah, it may be. And it, yeah. and it really does, you know, the metaphor, you know, Aegon's metaphor of the throne mm-hmm. really is illustrated well. Ned's uncomfortable up there for several reasons. Right. But it's also literally uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it very well could be that Ned's in a, was in an impossible situation from the beginning, and even if he was a brilliant strategist, he's he's not going to be in a great position. No, no, he isn't. Um, he's got the uh, the dilemma here. His wife is is a Tully, and mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this attack is against Tullys. Mm-hmm. He believes in honor. He he t- keeps talking about vengeance versus justice. Yeah. And he's trying to exact justice. And yet you I can't help thinking that he doesn't want to, you know, extend a little vengeance there as well. <laughs> he's angry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely want to get to that. You know, the, yeah. the difference between justice and vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about the phrase false knight. And I wonder if you okay. could reflect a little bit on the concept of a true knight, a false knight. Like, what what are we talking about? Right. Yeah. Well, um, Let's start with uh, what a, what is a true knight. So, what should a true knight do? Uh, a true knight, you know, it's interesting for Martin. The the term I think that term comes up most often via Sansa. Mm, yeah, you are no true knight, but she has this um, this idea of what a, her idea of what a true knight is. It's false. It's fictionalized. She mm. has this you know this vision, this kind of fictionalized vision of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas. Uh, a true knight should defend the realm, defend the king, uh, show honor, loyalty, mm-hmm. bravery. Those are the things that a, that a true knight should have good intentions. It's mm-hmm. interesting when you look at these, there are medieval kind of handbooks of chivalry, one by a man named Raymond Lull. Hmm. And he repeatedly, he says things like a true knight does true, performs true deeds. And it sort of almost goes in a circle with what a true knight should do. <laughs> right, of course. Well, I, yeah, sure. I mean, what he's not saying is that if you are a true knight, then any deed you perform will be true. And right. yet, you know, this is sort of back to my original question. You know, does mm-hmm. the code make the knight or does the knight make the code? I think that, of course, Sansa is drawing a lot from fiction in her concept right. of a true knight. Mm-hmm. But like you said before, the concept was always something of an aspirational office. Right. Yeah. So so th- those fictions that Sansa's reading or, mm-hmm. you know, you, we mentioned Lancelot earlier, they do some of the work that's necessary to create that kind of aspiration. Right. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's, you know, it's all very idealized and polished and. Uh, and whereas Martin is showing us kind of the ugly underbelly, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this <laughs> this other side of it. Right. Uh, so who? Another question will be: Who is a true knight within the realm of Westeros? And that gets uh, that's a very difficult question to answer as well. Of course, it's probably Brienne who can't really be a knight. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Okay. Good. All right. Then let's talk about. The ideal of, or the idea of a false knight, what would it take for someone to be a false knight? So someone to be a false knight, I think they would be taking advantage for their own good. Mm. Actually, uh, I'm going to read a little passage from one of these medieval handbooks on knighthood that talks about it. Okay, so this is um, 
Well, I've got a couple here. This is from Geoffroy de Charny, who, who was writing in the 14th century. And his book is a knight's own book of, of chivalry. That's mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, what, what it uh, comes from. This is from a section called Those, Those Unworthy to be Men at Arms. He says, those men who take up arms but are not men of arms, nor should be because of their dishonest and disordered behavior, these men want to wage war without good reason. They seize other people without prior warning and without any good cause and rob and steal from them, wound and kill them. Mm. Those who use arms in this dishonorable way behave like cowards and traitors. And he goes on from there. But it sounds like a pretty apt description of what Mm. what Gregor Clegane has done. Right, right. And yet, it's interesting that we have Picel's voice in this chapter, who's saying right. he couldn't have done this. He's he's a, he's an anointed right. knight. <laughs> right. you know, th- yeah. There's almost the, <laughs> that kind of tautology that you were calling out earlier. Mm-hmm. It almost presupposes that there's no such thing as a false knight. Of course, Picel right. we know is sort of the, a creature of the Lannisters. Exactly right. So, you know, his logic is flawed from the beginning. But clearly, this concept has to be in place because, of course, men are flawed. And not every person who holds the office is going to be, quote unquote, true. Right. But one can try to be true. (laughs) That's the other point. Um, What interests me, too, about Martin's portrayals of chivalry are how characters work within the contradictions of chivalry. So that Ned Stark, I think he believes so staunchly in in the code that he follows Mm -hmm. that he's not always able to follow through with the nuances. Mm -hmm. Someone like Gregor Clegane, he doesn't care. He's almost beyond the realm. He almost, to me, is like a, a mo- like a Grendel, like a monster. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, he, and he um, literally becomes a monster, right? He literally becomes a monster. And, and so I think he almost is beyond, um, kind of beyond. He's off the chart. The only virtue that, that I can imagine that he has, obviously, he has amazing prowess, right? That he's got this great physical strength. Right. But he just he uses it without any reserve, without any sense of honor. And I think honor is a big part of the chivalric code. Uh. Um, And he serves Tywin Lannister, but he really I don't think there's loyalty there. I think, you know, he just does does Tywin's bidding as sort of an excuse to go out and and kill because he's a killer. Right. Right. I mean, now that we have this spectrum, you know, we've got Brienne on one one end. Mm-hmm. And Gregor Clegane on the other, you know, even if both are questionably knights, right? Right. Gregor is an anointed knight, but now we're calling him a false knight. Mm-hmm. And of course, in many ways, Brienne is the knightly ideal, and yet she can't hold that title or office or something like that. Right. All right. So we've got these ends of the spectrum, and yet. Most of Martin's characters are somewhere in between. Right, yeah. And yeah. it's almost like it's like those contradictions that you were noting. Mm-hmm. Um, can you really be true if part of your job involves killing, right? Right. And you know, that's uh, basically you're a warrior and of course war is this hellish state of course. So how how can you remain true in this context? Right. And there are, again, the, um, the, the competing demands of the chivalric code is that ultimately, you know, ultimately, how can you do that? Yeah. Um, so even, you know, Sir Loras, who looks to be the flower of chivalry, right? Literally, right. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, knight yeah. of the flowers. It, it clearly, um, Sansa thinks so, right? 
Right. She thinks so. But he has a thirst for vengeance. Ned sees that. He's a bit too enthusiastic. He doesn't have the restraint uh-huh. that perhaps, uh, you know, that gets him in trouble later on. And uh, I think that's why Ned isn't sending him because he he knows that he has a kind of a, of a vendetta against Gregor. I guess there's a way to go about it. So that going back to that tournament, one of the things that makes Gregor such a monster is that he kills the squire, um, Hugh, but he, he goes for him because he sees that he hasn't properly attached part of his neck armor. Mm-hmm. And so he takes advantage of a weakness. And then when he uh, begins fighting with his own brother, um, you know, he's uh, unhelmeted and his brother knows you don't fight unhelmeted. Mm. So, uh, so there's violence, but there also are rules. Right. And Gregor doesn't obey the rules. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And yet, I think that there might be a little bit of a mirror back on Ned in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So, I agree. You know, yeah. So there, there's clearly there's this concept of true knighthood. And of course, we've got a few examples of this. Even in the room, you know, Loris is in mm-hmm. the room asking for, quote unquote, justice. Right. And yet maybe he'll take a little bit too much joy in, in administering mm-hmm. the justice. So of course Ned has to, you know, bring someone else in. Right. Oh. Sure. Even though it would have been a good alliance, as Pycelle points yeah, out exactly, to him. Exactly, exactly. And yet Ned what is Ned Ned is you know, Ned is not a knight, quote unquote, and yet he's sitting on a thousand swords. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of those coming from knights. And of course, th- mm-hmm. the swords are a, something of a metaphor for what the king is, is meant to do. You know, right. In, in ruling, the king is both conqueror and peacemaker. And of course, this is a contradiction. And here Ned is trying to keep the peace and bring justice. And yet he's not going to be very comfortable in this position, because, of course, this position is a contradiction. It is a contradiction. And and he's in a position where he's speaking for the king. He, sp- he says he's speaking for Robert. But what what he commands to have done, I am not so sure Robert would have done. So I think when not. Ned says, no, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's an assault on the Lannisters. He, <laughs> right, Robert he... can't do that. So when when he says he's, you know, he's the hand of the king, Mm -hmm. he's speaking in the king's voice. I think he's speaking in the voice of what he sees as the ideal leader, perhaps. I've I've been. Yeah. But, you know, the the mission that he's sending these these men on to, um, you know, to bring Gregor uh, Clegane to justice is going to cause all kinds of other conflicts. But what can Ned do? Right. He is completely caught in this situation. That's he right. can't do he can't do nothing. Uh. Well, I think that I mean he's got a couple advisors who are basically mm-hmm. saying yes, Ned, do nothing. You know, the Pycelle mm-hmm. certainly right <laughs> certainly has his his agenda, but also Baelish is saying, well, you know, they're on yeah. war horses, but you know they could have stolen these war horses from you know the last raid. So it you really don't know. You really don't yeah. have enough information, Ned. <laughs> right. To, yeah. to make any I, I, kind of yeah. uh, proclamation here. Of course, Ned, <laughs> you know, Ned is convinced that these are Lannisters. And for all of his honor, the sending of of these, I guess, men of justice to go after Gregor Clegane, even if it is 
done so for the sake of some sort of ideal leader, mm-hmm. it would a- it actually will help his wife's cause. It will, which means that he's not really speaking. <laughs> yeah, as the king, there, there might be a little self-interest. Yeah, there. a little again to the impossibility <laughs> of this, and of course, Varys is going right. to step in and say, "Hey, uh, <laughs> you could have you could have killed two birds with one stone here, Ned. You could mm-hmm. have allied with the Tyrells mm-hmm. simply by making an arrangement with." Loras, uh, yeah. Why not do both at the, at the same time? Why not improve the kingdom by bringing justice, but also do something that's more advantageous for House Stark? That seems like a much better option. <laughs> the more that I, the more that I think on it, and I think um, that Ned wants. I think Ned really wants to believe that he can put on the garb of impartiality. Right. Right. I, I do believe he believes in in the code that he follows. He believes yeah. in it. He, um, right. Yeah. Uh, and he'll go forward with it, even though there's going to be a lot of fallout from mm-hmm. this decision that he's making. So with for this conversation that we're having, are we <laughs> are you and I both comfortable thinking that Ned, even though not a knight, might represent something that's kind of the core to chivalry? I believe he does. And in fact, you know, in Winterfell, when, you know, his sons are being trained, their trainer, whose name I can't think of right now, says, I'm training knights. That yeah. obviously they have a code that parallels Bran's dream is of becoming a knight. So, it is, you know, of course, their religion prevents them from becoming technically knights. But I believe the code of honor that they follow very closely parallels and, and intersects with the code of chivalry. Hmm. I think that we've known that that Pycelle is pretty slimy all along, mm-hmm. but I think that this chapter really does bring out, in very obvious terms, right. how much yeah. Pycelle is in the pocket <laughs> of Tywin. Yeah, I mean, it is circumstantial evidence that these are Lannister men, but but you know, they make a good case that there's no one as large as Gregor Clegane. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Pycelle is looking for any kind of wiggle room he can to um, to try to get the Lannisters, I guess, off the hook in this situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk a little bit about justice versus vengeance. I think that Ned, okay. Ned has this very clear idea about, you know, that this is an act of justice that we're enacting here. I'm sending out men to do justice, bring justice to the false knight. And he makes a distinction here between what Loris wants, which he thinks is vengeance. He calls it vengeance. And what he's asking these other knights to do, Beric Dondarrion to do. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that difference. Is there a diff- Is there a distinction? Is it too fine a distinction? It's a fine distinction, but I, I think we can tease it out a little bit. Um, so we've we've talked about this contradiction, you know, that's kind of inherent in the chivalric code. It involves violence. But in these handbooks of chivalry, and you see this in romance as well, that you don't want to have excessive pride and, ex- and excessive ferocity, that it needs to be curbed by a good cause so that you're not killing for pleasure. And so I think that's what that's that difference between justice and vengeance. With vengeance, you're simply you're getting mm-hmm. back at someone out of anger. Mm-hmm. With justice, you're doing a deed that will bring potential peace to the realm, mm-hmm. that will give you honor. I and- think that in this chapter, there's a sense that the executioner can't enjoy his work too much. 
Right. You know, yes. you know Ned even <laughs> calls out like, look, I'm from the first men. The first men will always, mm-hmm. you know, the person who administers the judgment swings the sword. And previously in his conversation with Bran, Ned explains like, look, you got to be able to look the guy in, your, in the eye and, and make a hard decision. This should be a hard decision to make. Because, you, you you know, you take no pleasure in this, in other words. And he even, you know, he doesn't want to have to send men. But mm, he says, you know, right. I'm, in no condi- I'm in no condition. I can't do this myself. Therefore, right. you know, he's having to send men. So he does. He feels very strongly. And I think for him, mm. that's how he would draw this distinction. Right. And then, of course, this plays out really brilliantly as the chapter ends. And so I'm just going to read how the chapter ends. Okay. This is Varys talking. Very prudent, no doubt, Varys said. Still, I chanced to see Sir Illyn in the back of the hall, staring on us with those pale eyes of his, and I must say, he did not look pleased. Though to be sure, it is hard to tell with our silent night. I hope he outgrows his disappointment as well. He does so love his work. Right? So Ned hates executioners, right? Right. Because this sort of is in contradiction to the code of the first men. Mm-hmm. And so he's not going to send Ill and Payne. He doesn't trust Ill and Payne and all of that business. But the key distinction between justice and vengeance, at least from Ned's point of view, is are you going to take pleasure in administering <laughs> the execution? Right. Yeah. And of yeah. course, Ill and Payne <laughs> loves his work, right? Yes. <laughs> and of course, this also foreshadows Ned's ultimate fate. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, it certainly does. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a key distinction there, that you don't want to take pleasure. That Then you're not curbing your prowess, right? Mm-hmm. You're not, um, you're going forward without control, just right. with, with vengeance. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that there's an interesting distinction here. And I think that Varys, as Varys will often do, he will point out to Ned from time to time the gray areas of these things. Mm-hmm. And he'll do it in such a way where you wonder, like, which way does Varys want Ned to go? Or is he kind <laughs> of just enjoying observing, you know, this this poor guy right. in an impossible situation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Varys is another who... Um, you know, his claim is for the good of the realm of the realm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's pointing out, he does point out those gray areas. And again, with Ned's value system, I, I think maybe he sees the gray areas, but he doesn't want to work with those gray areas. He sees a real direction yeah. with the code of honor that he thinks he needs to follow. And I think that's why he, it doesn't end. <laughs> right. he's, he's not able to work with those inherent contradictions in a way I think that some of Martin's other characters are. Sure. Particularly, it's a topic for another day. But I think Jamie Lannister is someone who, who recognizes those contradictions and kind of works with them and I think maybe evolves. And the other one is the Hound who I think recognizes very clearly and obviously the contradictions within the Shavar and therefore refuses to be a knight. He refuses to be what what his brother is, a false knight. Right. So, I mean, certainly the Hound has this jaded idea of what an anointed knight really is because, of course, the parade example of this is his brother, uh, Mm -hmm. who's clearly an evil sociopath who's murdering without consequence. The worst of all Westerosi nights, and that's pretty low. I think that the Hound also recognizes some of those traits in himself and maybe mm-hmm. 
maybe doesn't quite know what to do with, you know, I think he's he's very much a soul at struggle. Right. Yeah, I Um, agree with that. And of course, Jamie's in this situation early on in his life. As a very young man, he's forced to decide, do I honor and obey my father or do I honor and obey the father of the realm because they're giving me contrary instructions? Right. And and there's there's where he so clearly sees those contradictions. I think my favorite passage is where he's imprisoned by Catelyn and he's saying so many vows, so many vows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, he's torn so many ways. What and a, we see what a that, wonderful illustration of what we've been uh, talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's my favorite passage. And and I can see Ned at this point kind of torn between he's loyal to yeah. Robert and he's loyal to obviously his wife. He feels his responsibility yeah. towards the realm. And he's angry himself. He's ticked off. Yeah. (laughs) So he feels a little personal vengeance that he's trying to curb, I believe. Right. I'm going to call out a few introductions. Okay. Uh, So notable introductions in this chapter. Carol Vance and his wine-colored birthmark. Sir Mark Piper. And although they're not named as such, we do have the introduction to the Brothers Without Banners. Mm-hmm. Who will become important later on, it, not in this book, but in future books. And maybe the most important introduction of all, introduction to the Iron Throne. This We've heard of it. This is the first time we've actually seen it in action. Notable departures. No one's really departed, although we kind of have this. <laughs> this is sort of the departure of Ned's short stay on the Iron Throne. I right. Suppose. The beginning of the end. <laughs> this is the, yeah, maybe the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I wanted to call out some book versus show differences. Mm-hmm. This one was a little bit difficult. I, I guess the way that the room is arranged is, is slightly different. It's probably not all that notable. But the Iron Throne looks much differently in the books than it does with the HBO adaptation. It does, yeah. I think I appreciate the discomfort of it so much more in reading. Yeah. In Martin's original vision, it's massive, Mm -hmm. and it's it's even more uncomfortable. And it really looks like this monstrosity. Yeah. Um, And, of course, also, uh, this is just an actor choice, but in this chapter, Beric is called a young man. Right. Or a young lord or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is certainly not the the choice. But I'm, I'm... I'm completely in love with the actor who ends up playing mm-hmm. Barrack. I, I can see no one else. Uh, I will say that there were more than one Barrack. In this early first season, uh, uh, Barrack is played by a, a different actor than mm. the one who ends up dying and coming back. And coming back. <laughs> several times. <laughs> but I guess, I guess that can age a man, you know, after yes. several resurrections. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the to the television version, if I could, for a minute. A, a couple of things that struck me about it. One was we've talked about Ned having really kind of circumstantial evidence. And so it was interesting to me that in the that in the show version, they brought in that smelly bag of fish <laughs> and, and drop it on the floor as proof that they were Tully's. Oh, and yes. Okay. Yeah, so they did. They needed, and it must. I'm saying smelly because of the faces. That they, well, no, and I and I totally <laughs> forgot about that, and I'm glad you brought that back. Yeah, that they needed that extra bit of um, of evidence, I guess. Right. Um, that yeah, that the the TV producers decided they needed that. Um, they also, in the chapter 
I think we 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 can more fully appreciate the atrocities that Gregor has done because there are multiple little people speaking right the common right. folk are speaking yeah, yeah. whereas it's sort of just one person so you know um but I, but I, you know another thing this chapter highlights about the chivalric code um kind of transitioning from the series back into the chapter is the uh the effect of warfare and the effect really of you know of chivalry on the common folk that they're you know they're in the wake they're they're receiving a lot of devastation here, um, regardless. Even in a even in a what a so-called true war, right? That you know the little people really suffer here, the common folk. Again, we hear Varys's voice, uh, right? Kind of, kind of calling this out, you know. Yeah. For all of your honor, you know, choosing to go to war is going to bring violence to the mm-hmm. innocent. Um, right. Yeah. So I had a I had a question. Mm-hmm. So Renly and Selmy have gone off with Robert because a white heart has been <laughs> spotted in the Kingswood. Right. And in my vague recollections of symbols, mm-hmm. the white heart can sometimes be like thought of a messenger from the other side or something. It can. It's associated like, with the questing beast and the and the whole quest, and it's uh, it can be highly symbolic. So I too noted that. I didn't really follow through with it uh, as I probably should have. Well, but I, I was too wondering. Was struck. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about that. I was wondering if this could be something like uh, you know, Robert, some sort of portent, like Robert is actually about to go to the other side. It could be. Yeah. It it uh, it well could be a bit of foreshadowing on Martin's part there that there's this. Um, this you know, white heart, this very rare, maybe even non-existent beast that they're questing after, right. and yeah, it can it can take you into unknown realms. And of course, and certainly, yeah, yeah that's where where Robert's headed. <laughs> and of course, Robert's sigil is the stag. The stag, right? Yeah, yeah. And even you know, in I'm thinking now back to to our setting here in this chapter that Ned notices. Well, the dragons are no no longer there, but there are these tapestries that have the, the stags on them. Mm-hmm. But all he can see is blood, right? That he right. sees. He um, kind of a maybe you know he has a little bit of uh, this sense of portents as well. You know that that has a that little note also has an echo. In Arya's narratives, Arya has a dream mm-hmm. that the Red Keep has like walls dripping w- with blood. She does, yeah. And she, after that, recalling that dream, she ends up hearing Varys and Illyrio talk about one hand can die, so can another. And so Martin, I think Martin is calling us back to that portent. Yeah, it's certainly that the language parallels the language here does parallel that language that he uses um, to describe Arya's dream. You really get the sense that the Red Keep is this is not a a good place to be. (laughs) Right. You know, you can die like John Arryn pretty easily. Um, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uncomfortable for Ned in, in every way. In you know, every even, way. You know, That's he knows right. that the, the, the code that they're following you know, is at odds with his own and he only bad things can happen. Yeah. And so I think that, that his observation about the red could be, um, you know, him kind of foreseeing that this is a tough situation and it's probably not going to end well. <laughs> Rick, how you doing, buddy? You 
You don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are, too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. And now Steve and I cover episode four of season five. Jorah and Tyrion are in a boat. Marjorie and Cersei continue their power plays with Tommen as a pawn. Jon Snow deals with the duties of Lord Commander up at the Wall. And the Dorn plot continues to be the Dorn plot. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, if you could choose a character to be your boss in this show, a character to be a coworker in this show, and a character to be your employee. So anyone, anyone that you've met in the world of Game of Thrones, you've got to choose to be a boss, a coworker, an employee. Um probably as an employee i think i'd like uh jack and hagar <laughs> oh, oh really yeah <laughs> you want to murder some dudes well i just like the i like the idea that uh, if, as soon as i kind of know what motivates them i can get them to do whatever i want okay all right um, and they'll and they'll finish the project right yeah he seems intent to to finish the project in fact if the project is killing himself, he may kill himself. Yeah. A uh, co-worker. That would save you a lot on a severance package. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the co-worker probably go with Davos just because he seems like a, a reasonable conversationalist. You know, I mean, he's got a lot of good traits. He's the kind of guy I bet you, like, I could probably move some of my own projects for him to do. And huh. he would almost feel like it'd be an honor. All right. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what, man. This, this, these are... Two characters that I would have never imagined, but I'm buying it. Like I, I <laughs> totally see that. All right, so you, so now you choose your own boss. Uh, Hodor. <laughs> so you, you, 
You want a boss that doesn't know he's your boss. Yes. Yeah. I had a lot of, I've had a lot of managers over uh, my life and I've worked at places that have had a lot of turnover and I felt like I spend a lot of time trying to manage up. It'd be nice to not really have to do that. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't have seen any of these coming. I was thinking, here's what I was thinking. Okay. I was thinking, I want Tyrion as my boss. Okay. I feel like Tyrion treats Pod really well. Good. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, I mean, even when Shaga was around, I never felt like he was. I, mean, I think Shaga had it pretty good. Coworker, I was thinking, I was thinking Jamie Lannister because huh. I just like talking mess. You know, I, you don't think you don't think he's he might be gunning for your job at some point, or well, we're coworkers. I mean, he's yeah. he's got my job. Well, I know, but like everybody's looking to advance, right? He, not Jamie. Jamie doesn't want to advance. Good point. Good point. That's fair. All right. So, and then I was thinking as my employee, I was thinking Pod just because he's not great, but he's earnest and he's trying hard. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't want to work with, for, uh, or for the smoke baby. You don't have anything to do with the smoke, baby. Yeah, I don't even really want to work for me. Uh, but, I mean, if I had to choose one of the three, I guess I'd rather I'd rather have the smoke baby clocking in so I kind of keep an eye on them. All right. So, something that worked for you this episode. Um, there were a couple things I, I, I rather enjoyed. Still enjoy the... Um, this, the, the Poor Tommen. <laughs> this Tommen. Like, I mean, Cersei is, like, full on, right? I mean, Cersei is... Cersei's pretty impressive with what she's doing and very calculated. I mean, really, really strutting her her stuff in the way that she can sort of keep her hands clean and and really manipulate a lot of what's going on in in King's Landing. So this was what I had made in the note of. This was like my favorite thing. But then, um, but then Tyrion with a gag in his mouth uh, clearly is clearly uh, highlight of this episode. Like everything was like super interesting. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> but man, the uh, so good, so good. <laughs> I I love I love that too. And um, I I feel like I've got my old Tyrion back. Yeah, you know, and he's and he's just trying to exchange barbs with Jorah, and Jorah just really likes to punch people in the face. So he, yeah. he he does that punch, like the one punch knockout with the guy. He's going to take his boat. And then he doesn't say a word to Tyrion and just smacks him in the face. So I thought that was pretty great because you kind of got this little, okay, this is going to be a Jamie Brienne vibe where now Tyrion's captive and he's just going to try to exchange barbs with his captor. Jorah's not having any of it. Right. No, and and so and and Jorah has always, for me, been a necessary but sort of disposable character. It, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. How I've, I, you know, and it's and again, I think a lot of it has to do with the slow burn of being interested in Danny. And well, he only, he only ever had one note, right? Right. Yeah. His his one note was to kind of like I'm devoted to Danny. I'm devoted to Danny, and I'm I'm never. You're never going to see me raise my voice. I'm always kind of going to kind of be stoic. Even when I dissent from Danny, I won't show much emotion about it. So this is a whole different Jorah we're seeing. Yes. 
Yeah, so that that helps. All right, let me tell you something that didn't work for me. The death of Barristan Selmy. I think I'm supposed to care, mm. and I just don't care. No, I. You know what? That's a really good point. I very much had the same same feeling. Yeah, I feel like they were. They should have done more for him to sort of make me care about him. I think, uh, and this, this feels accelerated. This feels very much like, hey, look, we're gonna have a little bit of a moment with Danny that right. Uh, that we talk about singing and we're going to show a human side of him and it's going to show a certain connectivity between the two of them. So that's going to matter. But it's like, I I think that that was too little too late and it was too, too forced. I actually kind of like the scene where he he was talking about her older brother and right, right, right. No, that's all fine. Oh, this is actually, this is kind of working for me. I I could see this, you know, he kind of sliding into this Jorah Mormont role. We'll do that an episode before. Or do that several episodes before and then and make him interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because at this point, he's not right. He's just. Yeah. Right. This is supposed right. to be one of those episodes where you're like, whoa, my gosh, I can't believe it. It's episode four and we've seen this much death and they killed off this these this character. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So it fell flat if that was the intent, in my opinion, because Barristan. Right. Not- I think it fell flat if that was the intent. I think that the secondary intent is to create a little bit of a small council vacuum around Danny. Right. So which is which timing wise is perfect, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Because so you've the, got you've got Tyrion on the way. And so yeah, that Tyrion adds- and Jorah are coming back. I want to do a little bit of backstory. We hear a lot about Rhaegar Targaryen in this episode. Mm-hmm. So just great to video g- game, Rhaegar of the Targaryen. <laughs> I think it was NES, not to be mistaken with Karnov. Karnov, of course, being the fire breathing pudgy Russian. <laughs> That wore, wore no shirt. I don't know if you remember that one. I do not remember that. Yeah, little guy. Just he had. I think he just wore pants. He had a mustache. Well, I do like head. my Russian men shirtless. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. So this this would be right up there with because like he. I think he breathed fire. Very reminiscent of somebody who would be like at a circus breathing fire. The shirt was pudgy Russian. But only this was the one that got into the adventures. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, let me tell you about <laughs> Rhaegar because okay. he was mentioned in the Littlefinger Sansa conversation. You know, they were looking at the statue of Lyanna Stark, who was mm-hmm. Ned's sister. Apparently, the story there is that he, that Rhaegar Targaryen kidnapped and raped her. So that's the official story, and that's actually what made Robert Baratheon want to go to war and overthrow the Mad King. Because of what happened to his beloved Liana. So there's that part of it. And then we hear sort of a different version of his character from Barristan Selmy, mm-hmm. who actually knew him and said, actually, he was a great guy. He loved to sing. He gave away yeah. money. In Barristan's eyes, this guy just seems like uh, he would have been, been a great king, right? He was next in line for the throne. It, he probably would have been a lot better than his father. And Rhaegar is then married to Elia Martell. That was the whole Mountain and Viper business because Oberyn wants to avenge his sister, Elia Martell. Right. Okay, well, Rhaegar ends up falling in love with Lyanna Stark. And it's kind of this public, like everyone kind of knows about it. And what ends up happening is, the official narrative is anyway, he kidnaps Lyanna Stark because he's just 
he's he's mad with lust for her or something like mm-hmm. that. And this causes Robert to go to war, and the rest is the rest is history. And the only reason that I'm filling you in on that backstory is because Martin loves to bring up like a a, a political mistake from like 20 years ago, and then show like a 20 year long consequence for something like that. Well, and it adds a certain level of uh, of gravity to the decisions that are being made. Right, 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 right. Everything that they're doing now, we're set into motion from years past, and then this will. Con- continue to set things in motion that's down right. the way which shows the criticality of these decisions right that's right um and it suggests that some of this Rhaegar plot is going to come back into the story at some point mm-hmm. dismemberment count uh a horse loses his leg steve when uh brawn is being attacked by the men of dorn uh he takes off a horse's leg <clears throat> oh that's right yeah and I'm not sure what happens to that snake. That snake probably gets cut in half. I think that if you cut a snake in half, that counts as dismemberment, right? I think so, right? I mean, I think any part of a snake cut off is dismembering because it's just member. All right. Something that did not work for you in this episode. What it did not work for me, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's Doran, baby. Um, yeah. The daughters of Oberyn, that scene, that scene was... Uh, it's pretty bad. Scene. One of the worst scenes in, in this uh, in this series thus far. You know what, Steve? In Dorn, they like poison and they like the monologue. Oh, man. It's rough, dude. Dornish people love to monologue. And sometimes it gets... It'd be great if they were good at it. Sometimes it gets their head popped in. <laughs> and sometimes it results in someone else's head being impaled. But they love to monologue. And I tell you what, man... No one wants to be around someone who likes the monologue. No, and it was just so stilted, and any moment of drama in that <laughs> in that sequence was just cringy. And I yeah, just, it's not good. Immediately, I'm like, I am not, I'm not going to enjoy <laughs> any of this plot. I can't. I won't. <laughs> I just it. I mean, like, even even a, a head with scorpions on it wasn't enough. I like, in fact, I just go like, ooh, <laughs> it just was. It All right. Just so here's how much I didn't like this scene because this didn't work for me either. So I was making my notes and I was writing down the names of the daughters, uh, Nim, Obera, and then I like wrote down like a blank line. Like later on, I got to go look up this other person's name and. I just I didn't do it because I didn't care. Yeah, no, that's it, fair. It really doesn't matter. I don't need to know this other the, the third daughter's name. No, uh, I know. So. <laughs> it's funny because like again, I'm you know it's the same kind of approach that we've discussed. You know, here I am watching this series, knowing that there's this kind of this this outcry against you know it, it feels like it's careening towards disappointment. Yeah, um, as we get into the last uh, <laughs> seasons, and so. And so knowing that, the hope is that I will be able to mine the good out of it and maybe just allow. Yeah, myself. because you're not you're not gonna be nearly as built up as everyone else was, right? Right. I'm I'm expecting to be let down. So maybe I can I don't watch these episodes going forward with the expectations that everybody else was going from. So that's how bad this scene was because I told you this was a bad season. And so your expectations were low. <laughs> right. And so like the last episode we talked about, I'm like, hey, it was good. I think 
everything pretty much worked. But so I'm like, all right, I'm willing to get. And then as soon as we got on the Dorn, I'm already like, because mm, I don't even like the Dorn sequence in the uh, opening credits. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just like, ah, <laughs> just, yeah. and it's weird because it's like, I don't even, it's like, it's so hard to put my finger on it. It's just like anything Dorn is just not, it does not move me. And this was, wow, real bad. <laughs> hey, speaking of opening credits, um, Looks like they've uh, they've put some flayed man imagery in Winterfell. Did you? Did yeah, you I did catch that. Yeah, because it's not burning anymore. They it's got not the, burning. That's right. The, they got the banners up. And just you know, as a side note, I, I don't know if they're supposed to be lyrics to the theme song, but it. As far as I, I sing it every time. It's and it's always just uh, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, <laughs> Peter. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. 
It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to introduce you to a prince that we will meet in House of the Dragon. So this is just a little taste of the character that the famous Matt Smith will take on in the coming year. Mild spoilers for House of the Dragon, but I will say this. I don't think I'm going to read to you anything that's going to reveal too much about the plot. Just a few pages here, and just enough to introduce you to the character of Daemon Targaryen. This is a short story called The Rogue Prince, or A King's Brother, that was published in a collection of short stories, and the book is called Rogues. This is the final chapter of that book. Over the centuries, House Targaryen has produced both great men and monsters. Prince Daemon was both. In his days, there was not a man so admired, so beloved, and so reviled in all of Westeros. He was made of light and darkness in equal parts. To some he was a hero, to others the blackest of villains. No true understanding of that most tragic bloodletting known as the Dance of Dragons is possible without consideration of the crucial role played before and during this conflict by the rogue prince. The paragraphs that follow introduce some of the other key characters, but I'm just going to skip ahead so I can tell you a little bit more about Damon. As charming as he was hot-tempered, Prince Damon had earned his knight spurs at six and ten, and had been given dark sister by the old king himself in recognition of his prowess. Though he had wed the Lady of Runestone in 97 AC during the old king's reign, the marriage had not been a success. Skipping over description of his poor wife and his short tenure as Master of Coin, I'll jump to the next paragraph. Governance bored this warrior prince, however. He did better when King Viserys made him commander of the city watch. Finding the watchman ill-armed and clad in oddments and rags, Damon equipped each man with a dirk, short sword, and cudgel, armored them in black ringmail with breastplates for the officers, and gave them long golden cloaks that they might wear with pride. Ever since the men of the city watch had been known as the gold cloaks, Prince Damon took eagerly to the work of the gold cloaks and off-prowled the alleys of King's Landing with his men. That he made the city more orderly, no man could doubt, but his discipline was a brutal one. He delighted in the cutting off of hands, of pickpockets, gelding rapists, and slitting the noses of thieves, and slew three men in street brawls during his first year as commander. Before long, the prince was well known in all the low places of King's Landing. He became a familiar sight in wineskins where he drank for free, and gambling pits, where he always left with more coin than when he entered. As King Viserys has no living son, Damon regarded himself as the rightful heir to the Iron Throne and coveted the title Prince of Dragonstone, which his grace refused to grant him. But by the end of the year, 105 AC, he was known to his friends as the Prince of the City and to the small folk as Lord Fleabottom. Though the king did not wish Damon to succeed him, he remained fond of his younger brother, 
and was quick to forgive him his many offenses. Skipping ahead again, King Viserys never claimed another dragon after Balarion's death, nor did he have much taste for the joust, the hunt, or swordplay, whereas Prince Daemon excelled in these spheres and seemed all that his brother was not. Lean and hard, a renowned warrior, dashing, daring, more than a little dangerous. So that, as promised, was just a taste of Daemon Targaryen, who we will meet in the coming year in the newest HBO adaptation. And I think as these few pages show, Martin does indeed like his knights to be light and dark at once, to be gray characters. This, I think, is Martin's answer to the ideals of chivalry. On a side note, I am looking forward to House of the Dragon, and I hope you are too. And that is all for this week.